Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the leading provider in spoken word entertainment. Log on to audiblepodcast.com slash science to get a free audiobook download today. Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American. For the seven days starting December 19th, I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, we'll look at an audacious proposal for solar energy. We'll hear about a new health magazine from Scientific American, and we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. The January issue of Scientific American magazine features a multi-author article called A Solar Grand Plan, Siam's Mark Fischetti edited the article, which is also available free on our website. Mark and I sat down in the Siam library to talk about this possible solar solution. Hi, Mark. How are you? Hi, Steve. Good. So this, uh, a solar grand plan article in the uh, current Scientific American. Very interesting because I've seen a lot of other write-ups in journals that seem to make the point that it's just kind of theoretically impossible to generate enough power, enough electricity with solar to really make that much of a difference compared to what we're getting from fossil fuels. This article goes in a whole different direction and says, no, it is possible given the, given the will. Right. Right. I think, I think those articles in the past have sort of taken a look at the country and said, you know, there's not enough consistent solar radiation across the country or you know it's only for a few hours a day what do you do all night long so this grand plan essentially says put really vast arrays of uh, photovoltaic cells and solar thermal plants in the southwest covering thousands of square miles which would clearly generate enough power for the country but then you have to get it to the country and so what's also required then is a really a, a new direct current transmission system from the southwest that would kind of branch out to the rest of the country to deliver that power. How much actual square mileage are we talking about here? Well, uh, the calculations, you can have a mix of photovoltaics and solar uh, thermal, but essentially you're talking about 46, 49,000 square miles. 49,000 square miles, most of which would be in Arizona? Yeah, the, the desert southwest. It, it is a lot of area. And it sounds like a, a huge amount of area, but actually there's a map in the article that shows uh, five or six, um, if, if you divided it up just for argument's sake into five or six massive installations, they would fit very nicely in a few different parts of the desert southwest where, of course, the solar radiation is highest all year long. And there are some people in Arizona who are actually pretty excited about this idea. Yeah, there, there's there's some fairly large demonstration plants out there, and it's also um, a lot of that land is considered uh non-developable wasteland, if you will. Nothing else is going to happen there. Um, there may be some concern about ecological implications, but there's really not much going on there in that, <laughs> in that respect either. So in a way, um, you know, if you fly out west to California, you go over these areas where you look down the plane, there seems to be nothing. Well, there really is nothing. But there, there's a lot of sunlight there's hitting sunlight. that nothing. <laughs> so we're talking about uh, a whole lot of square miles and... The estimates in the article are by 2050, you could generate 69% of all United States electricity and 35, 35% of 
the total energy requirements of the country, strictly right. with these solar farms out in the southwest. Right, and that that's making um, two big assumptions. One, uh, one is that uh, replacing utility power is one thing, um, but a lot of the, the total energy in the country goes to transportation. So another big assumption is that you'd, you'd largely have to convert the U.S. passenger fleet to hybrid plug-in um, cars, light trucks, all that, so that essentially you're fueling vehicles with electricity as well. Yeah, the the assumption is the entire there's not a gas powered car left on the roads. Not many. <laughs> and uh they also say your your three authors say that if you throw in wind, biomass and geothermal by 2100 you can generate 100% of US electricity and 90% of all energy. Right. There's always going to be some local need for fossil-based fuels, um, you know, in industrial processing. There's some things you just can't do with electricity. But by and large, uh, right, if you wanted to try to pl- replace the those sorts of applications with biofuels and things like that, then you could be off oil altogether. Now, one of the interesting points is that in, in the 2050 scenario, if uh, 69% of the electricity is being produced by solar power, you essentially eliminate any need for any foreign oil imports, which has enormous implications for um, policy, international relations, trade deficits. So there's a lot more than just um, uh, energy that we're talking about. But the, uh, I guess the point is that the United States wouldn't be reliant on Middle Eastern oil, which changes, you know, massive uh, foreign policy uh, implications for the country. Yeah, absolutely. So um one interesting factoid in the article is that although that that huge landmass that we're talking about seems just, you know, mind-boggling, according to the article, it's actually less land that's required to run 300 uh equivalent energy output coal plants. Yeah, the the estimate uh, again this for 2050 was what you'd effect, in effect be doing is displacing 300 oil-fired power plants, another 300 coal-fired power plants. So the land required for 600 fossil fuel power plants, if you want to think of it that way, if you consider the whole system, which includes mining coal, which includes drilling for oil, uh, the refining of all that, it's not just the power plant. Uh, that the land, the, the land trade-off actually gets to be fairly close. You know, the solar power plant is the footprint of the solar power, and that's it. There's no mining, there's no processing, there's no fuels that you have to purchase that get, need to be transported there. So, yeah, it's, it's very interesting when you think about the really the whole system involved. Yeah, because it's so uh, energy-intensive just to bring fossil fuels to the consumption stage. Right, that alone, right. Just, uh, just want to clarify one thing. I think you said... 300 coal and 300 oil. I think the article says 300 coal and 300 natural gas plants, right? Okay. Right. right. Just want to get that on record for anybody who's out there preparing their investments <laughs> and or their their local uh, power plants. Right. The article talks about a secondary uh, energy storage medium that's really pretty uh, pretty interesting because when we when we think of solar, we always think of solar panels, or most of us do, I would assume. That, uh, you know, photo, photovoltaics that, that turn the solar energy into electric current. But we also have this hot salt business that's really kind of interesting where you're turning the solar energy into heat. 
Right. If you think about, uh, think about a long trough that reflects sunlight, it concentrates the sunlight along a pipe that runs parallel to the long trough. And concentrating the sunlight, like a magnifying glass, um, heats the fluid inside this pipe really hot. So the hot fluid circulates out to, um, somewhat traditional power plant where it, it's allowed to expand into high pressure gas that turns a turbine, which generates electricity. Um, the the problem with that as well as the photovoltaics is when the sun goes down, you don't have the power source anymore. So what you need, if if you're really going to have a full energy system, is you need a way to store energy, excess energy that's generated during the daylight hours so that you've got a reserve for evening or nighttime. And that has been a, a pedi- an impediment for a long time. Um, in the solar thermal case, the troughs, what you would do uh, is have big tanks of molten salt where those are heated up during the daytime and they stay hot, they retain heat overnight, and you're essentially drawing heat out of there to run the turbines. There's this other technology of compressed gas that takes advantage of, uh, or that it doesn't take advantage, it, it's it's a way to deal with the fact that solar isn't getting you anywhere at night. So during the day you compress gas and then at night you uh, you release the gas and the gas... Uh, turns the turbines and you produce electricity. Right. Here, here's, uh, you've got underground caverns essentially. So if you think about a full photovoltaic farm, uh, producing electricity, uh, it basically goes to a compressor that compresses air and pumps it into these caverns that are underground, which are kind of everywhere. Um, fill the cavern with high pressure gas and then at night, right, uh, release it. Again, you get a high pressure gas that turns a turbine, uh, that creates energy, electricity. So one big issue that needs to be dealt with and it isn't discussed in the article but we need to make sure that our compressed air systems are really airtight uh-huh. because the the amount of uh of uh, energy that's wasted in leaks of compressed air could be really significant if this whole system were ever actually put in place yeah there's another interesting parallel too which is uh, again if you sort of think of this in your in your mind ge- geologically or, or geographically i should say so you've got these big farms in the southwest you've got this high voltage direct current sort of trunk line feeding uh, uh other parts of the country with the power what do you do with it there well so you've have these uh, caverns kind of all spread all over the place where you where you're compressing air and then you're tapping into that locally to supply power for any given region. Um, that may sound a little grandiose too, except that in the natural gas industry, which is obviously a huge industry nationwide, that's how they work too. There's, there's a network of pipelines, but the natural gas is stored underground in caverns all across the country. So it actually makes a lot of sense to think of it that way. So here's the big question, you know, who's going to pay for all this? Right. Well, the, the plan, um, basically is set up like this from, uh, 2010 to 2020, roughly, the U.S. would have to, the, the, the federal government would have to supply about $420 billion in subsidies to get these massive scale of production for, you know, all the mix of photovoltaic systems, uh, solar power systems the compressed air systems, the direct current system. So $420 billion in subsidies. After 2020, essentially, you've got like a 30-year subsidy payback kind of plan. So that by 2050, all the components of this this new industry would be um, on their own. It's a lot of money, and yet when you compare it to other national infrastructure expenditures over time, it's not unreasonable at all. It's actually um, less money than was spent 
to create the whole federal interstate highway system, which completely remade the, the system of commerce in the country. It's um, the high-speed communications network that's nationwide. You know, everybody's got high-speed internet. And, well, how, how do you actually get high-speed internet? Well, there's a physical system that's been built, uh, satellites, terrestrial, and that's estimated to have cost about a trillion dollars. So on those scales, at least, $420 billion is uh, still a lot, but it's not unheard of amount of money. And for those of you Grover Norquist fans out there who don't want the federal government investing in anything, um, you're listening to this presumably because you have an internet connection that the federal government invested in at first, <laughs> and then the whole technology was privatized. You know, that that's the way cancer research works in this country, too, where the federal government sponsors the initial research, and then the pharmaceutical companies take advantage of what's been learned through drug screenings and they go and develop the drugs for profit so it's it's really the standard business model yeah it's how a lot of things you know the the telephone system there's a lot of uh systems infrastructure type systems that that's how it, essentially the government's putting in the seed money if you want to think of it that way now it's a lot of seed money nonetheless uh you know farming systems there are farm subsidy programs that are equally large in the hundreds of billions of dollars um, so yeah, it is how things can get done. And, uh, here's, here's a question that should almost always be asked and very seldom does. If you think this is expensive, what's the cost of not doing it? Right. If you actually, if you calculate, uh, if you think about those 600 fossil fuel power plants and if you calculate how much money is spent to purchase the fuel, that's the big thing that people don't really think about. The solar fuel is free. Fossil fuels cost a lot of money and has a lot of uh, climate impact. That's something we haven't covered either. But um, this plan would also reduce carbon dioxide emissions to about a third of what they are now in 2050, assuming some level of growth as well. It's a really interesting proposal, and uh, it's one of those uh, rare opportunities where we'll actually be able to track whether or not anything happens, and, and if it does, how how well this actually works over the coming decades. Yes, right, right. Thanks a lot, Mark. Okay, thank you. Again, the article, A Solar Grand Plan, is in the January issue of Scientific American and is available free at our website, siam.com. And you can take part in a discussion of the solar plan. Just go to the article at the siam.com website and leave a comment. Two of the article's authors, Ken Zweibel and James Mason, are posting detailed responses to readers. We have Scientific American Magazine, Scientific American Mind Magazine, so there was an obvious place to go next. That's right, Scientific American Body, which looks at the science of health. It hit the newsstands last week. Editor-in-Chief John Rennie and I talked in his office. Hey, John, how's it going? Just fine, Steve. How are you? Tell us about... Uh, Scientific American body. Yes, uh, Scientific American has been trying to expand the offerings it has in the health area for a while, uh, most of which are available through uh, our website, siam.com. And uh, we thought that uh, certainly in conjunction with that, a great thing to do would be to bundle together a lot of this uh, great new content we have and try to present that as a special issue, which is hitting newsstands now as Scientific American body. We have Scientific American, Scientific American mind, and now Scientific American Body. Yes, we're hitting it from all sides now. Right, you can't avoid us. 
And uh, what's what are some of the highlights of Scientific American Body? Well, let's see. I think uh, that we have the, the centerpiece of the issue is a special report we're doing about uh, diabetes and the management of diabetes these days. The uh, because of the advances in science surrounding the disease, you have a lot more options these days, both in how you want to manage that and potentially maybe even cure that someday. And of course, that's such a huge problem because it's connected to. The obesity epidemic. Right. Uh, diabetes is one of the fastest rising health problems all over the world. It, it's a strange thing in some ways that uh, many of us think of diabetes as a what they used to call a, a disease of affluence, that it was a disease you'd find a lot in uh, the richer and developed world. But in fact, uh, some of the fastest rising areas afflicted with diabetes now are places like India. And so you can imagine that's going to be a tremendous problem, and it's something that's going to be very important to get all the right kinds of information out to people there. That's really amazing that that's the case. I, I know that in our, our September issue of Scientific American, Barry Popkin pointed out that the, uh, there are now more people on the planet suffering from obesity than from malnutrition. Right, it's, which is a dizzying thing for those of us who've been alive for just a few decades and have seen how much concerns about overpopulation and starvation used to color a lot of these discussions. So back to body, what else do we have that would be of interest to the uh, Scientific American interested audience? Well, we have uh, a story about the state of the artificial heart. Uh, for decades, uh, researchers have been trying to develop a really good permanent implantable artificial heart. In some ways, you would think that would not be that hard a problem. I mean, the heart is basically just a mechanical pump. Surely, if there's any kind of organ we should be able to replace, uh, that would be it. Uh, but uh, the science writer Ray Herbert uh, goes into why it is that developing a good artificial heart is indeed such a tough problem to crack, but how close we are to it right now. So by 2050, do you think that artificial hearts will, will have a real strong place in in the medical armamentarium? Well, I would say probably a lot sooner than that, yes. Um, in a sense, your need for an artificial heart always is a way to counterbalance the shortage of transplantable hearts. So it's the fact that we don't have enough other hearts uh, that are being donated or available for donation uh, that uh, that determines the need that we have for artificial hearts. Now, with new kinds of technologies that are coming up, new types of, of tissue engineering and, uh, you know, some of the hopes that people have for stem cells and the like, it may be interesting to see if there are other ways, alternatives to dealing with really badly damaged hearts uh, that would involve growing a new heart um, or replacing or, or repairing the damage to a badly damaged heart that might make uh, artificial hearts less important in the somewhat more distant future. But uh, I would expect really probably within just another few years, um, artificial hearts of this uh, permanent implantable heart may really be something that uh, we can rely on. Do we avoid some rejection issues with artificial hearts? Well, that's uh, one way of dealing again with you know with the transplant issue overall. The the more you want to relax your considerations about how close a match you need with donors, um, you know you you open up the field of of organs that are available for any particular patient. But uh, you risk, of course, obviously very very serious indeed lethal reactions in most of those cases. And we only do have something on the order of about. 2,200 hearts that are available uh, for donation and transplantation uh, every year, whereas the need is much, much higher than that. So, so back to Scientific American Body, uh, in some ways it resembles the classic Scientific American magazine. We have the, the feature well with a, a few uh, long feature articles, and then we have 
some departments? What uh, what are people going to be interested in in terms of just wandering around in the magazine? Well, we think that uh, certainly uh, there's a, a new section called The Pulse, which uh, covers a lot of new breaking sorts of developments. Um, we have a, a column called Alternatives in this uh, that is designed to help people take a look at uh, some sorts of of alternative therapies that are sometimes disputed, um, kind of, of alternatives to conventional Western medicine. Uh, in this issue we put together, we look at uh, the, the uh, treatment called EMDR, which is uh, sometimes used as a way of treating people who have uh, certain sorts of uh, post-traumatic uh, syndrome. That's um, a question, This seemingly this type of strategy of just having people think about what happened to them and moving their eyes is supposed to uh, be able to help them get over the trauma associated with that. Um, uh, as the uh, researchers writing about the, the state of what's actually known about it say, uh, actually, it's not really clear that this works any better than any number of other cognitive therapies that have been developed. So in our alternatives look, we'll, we'll be uh, taking a pretty hard-headed analysis at these kinds of alternative therapies. That's right. I mean, I think what what the the point of of that is, uh, we're we're trying to be open minded enough to look at these and be open to see where maybe some of these kinds of therapies really do work. For example, uh, acupuncture is something that seems to bring at least as much relief to people who suffer some kinds of back pain as a lot of other surgical or other conventional techniques do. But we also want to try to warn people away from uh, the the sorts of of remedies that are being prescribed that maybe are not really backed up by much science at all. So, uh, Scientific American Body, it hits the newsstands. Some newsstands may want to try to put it over in their uh, their health section as well, but, um, but uh, look for it near Scientific American. The words Scientific American are very small on the cover. The word body is big, and you see what looks like a guy swimming through a double helix. Yes, yes, that's right, with a big glowing heart. Some of the articles in Siam Body are free on the website, such as the special report on managing diabetes and the feature article that asks the controversial question, is there really an autism epidemic? Check them out at siam.com slash siambody. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, human beings register incredibly faint odors coming off each other which affect whether or not we like the people that we don't realize we're smelling. Story two, mud can form in moving water. Story three, Australian researchers are trying to isolate bacteria that kangaroo stomachs have so they can give them to sheep and cattle because the bacteria keep the roos from contributing greenhouse gases via flatulence. And story four, George Smoot Winner of the 2006 Nobel Prize in Physics took a half million dollars of his winnings and bet on red to come up at a roulette wheel at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas. He won, doubled his money, and walked away. Time's up. Story one is true. We apparently do smell these really faint smells coming off other people, and it affects how we feel about them. That's according to a study in the December issue of the journal Psychological Science. And you thought you didn't like your brother-in-law because he keeps borrowing money. Story two is true. Mud can still form in moving water, according to research published in the journal Science. 
For more crystal clear mud news, check out the December 18th edition of the daily Scientific American podcast, 60 Second Science. And story three is true. Bacteria in kangaroo stomachs apparently keep their flatulence from including methane. The wire service AFP reports that researchers are trying to find the microbes and add them to livestock digestive systems to see if that can cut their output of greenhouse gas. Some wags suggest a simpler solution, stop eating cattle and sheep, and switch to kangaroos. All of which means that story four about Nobel laureate George Smoot doubling his money at a roulette wheel in Vegas is totally bogus. Because Smoot actually took 500000 of his $700,000 share of the Nobel Prize and used it to help start the new Berkeley Center for Cosmological Physics. For an explanation of why the unit of measurement called the Smoot is not named for George Smoot, just go to the Siam website and search for Smoot. The column that comes up will explain all. Well, that's it for this edition of the weekly Siam podcast. You can write to us at podcast at siam.com and check out numerous features at the new siam.com website, including The Clash. You know those shows where people with differing viewpoints snipe at each other? Imagine if really smart people are doing it about science. That's The Clash. You can find it in the sections menu at siam.com. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Happy holidays and thanks for clicking on us.